0: Welcome to The
1: Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visebview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot, also all one word, .com. And procure a copy of that book amount of works at the farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast. that is thefarmpodcast. all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, folks, this is a continuation of the Farm's storied World Anti-Communist League series, but with a twist we have been looking at the evolution of the old wackle network from the end of the cold war up to current day events and trust me folks it's simply incredible as to how relevant wackles legacy is in 2023 when keith and i and the rest of the original wackle crew began the podcast series we saw it as basically a historical undertaking but as the show I did with Keith and some other people last year on Abe's assassination demonstrated, the Old wackle Network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs. At the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever. Private military and intelligence companies, or PMCs and PICs, one of the contentions we shall make with this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of Wackel-like bodies. Whereas during the Cold War, Wackel served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order, alike to arrange things with, let's just say, a motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, next-generation black terrorists, and religious fanatics and cultists of various stripes. It was an incredible milieu, both sides of which, i.e. the underworld and overworld, still largely existing today. But increasingly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business on any number of levels. At the center of all of this was the most enigmatic of private militaries companies. It was allegedly a Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited or Far West LTD. But it was so much more than that, as we have seen over the course of this series. Indeed, it was probably one of the major factors behind the present war in Ukraine and how Mr. Joe Biden ended up in the White House. I truly wish I was exaggerating these claims, but I think we've made a good case up to this point. We've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West, the origin stories of the people who founded it, its role in the Great Ruble Scandal, the Moscow apartment bombings, 9-11, Project Hammer. Uh, its involvement in the Wanga coup, its shocking links to the smuggling of nuclear and biological weapons, its ties to the Ukrainian Orange Revolution, and the 2008 Russo Georgian War, which in and of itself is a majorly overlooked geopolitical event. So, with this outing, as we draw into the end of this particular saga, is going to focus on some figures that have been making a lot of headlines of late, namely Paul Manafort, Burisma, Joe Biden, and the intrigues at play in Ukraine leading up to the current war with this whole circle of people here. We're also going to get a lot into Russiagate, uh, how Trump's administration was brought down, how Obama's overtures for detente with Russia were sabotaged, and a lot of other significant geopolitical intrigues. So, as with all of the episodes in Far West, this show and the entire series is dedicated to Ed Kaufman, alias Non-Diligent. Ed was the absolute heart and soul of the original Wackle series. I hope and pray that I have done him justice with this one. As great a researcher as Ed was, he was an even better man. So, on that note, let us start the show. We'll before we make our final rundown here of far west there's a lot that uh needs to be unpacked which is why you get me here uh in this particular installment because i am going to lay the foundation for all the intrigues here in ukraine and then in the next episode senate is going to explore the implications of ukraine and a lot of other Deep events that were unfolding around the crucial period of 2003, 2000, or excuse me, 2013, 2014. And if it potentially amounts to a kind of global strategy of tension, specifically to sabotage relations with Russia, it's going to be quite an undertaking. And that's all before we wrap it up with one final visit to Saudi Arabia with Ed Berger. But before we get to that, let's get into this unpacking that I've got to do. So, there are a few additional details about far West's relationship with the Banderites in Ukraine Ukrainian nationalist circles that I need to cover here most of the far West partners came out of the Soviet intelligence services and despite being firm nationalists had limited contact with the Banderites until the 1990s when I say Banderites I'm referring to the organization Ukrainian Nationalist Banderite faction or Bandera faction it's named after Stefan Bandera the now kind of semi-mythological leader of the original OUNB and yes these were the really militant fascist ones I mean arguably all of the OUN uh, were fascist but there were different sections within it and the OUNB was surely the most militant, to, to put it mildly. But anyway, uh, as for Far West and the contact with the Banderites, it probably began and was initiated by a fellow who went by the name of Mycola Lebed. So, Lebed was a leading figure in the OUNB and was effectively Yaroslav Stetsko's number two and head of security for years. Stetsko was who took over the Bandarite faction after Stefan Bandera himself was assassinated in the mid uh, 1950s. Actually, I think it was closer to the late 50s. And uh, Stetsko remained as the top guy in the OUNB until the time of his death, which uh, was in the 1980s, if I recall correctly. And then his wife, we'll be hearing about here in a second, became the head for a couple of years before she also uh, pierced the proverbial veil as well. Uh, but yeah, these uh, the Stetskos were a major force in the OUNB for a lot of years, and Michael uh, Lebed was a very trusted aide, which is interesting in light of the fact that he also collaborated with Soviet intelligence for decades, and may even have made two trips the soviet union during the 1960s Lebed founded the prologue research corporation in the early 1950s and headed it until 1975 and he still remained active in it until the mid-1980s by this time the group was headed by a fellow named roman kopchinsky he also, this is Kopchinsky, Chuck, Chuck That is to say, worked for Radio for Europe slash Radio Liberty during the 1990s. Kopchinsky allegedly became Vladimir Filin, who was the top Banderite in Far West Limited. Allegedly, became Filin's main point of contact with the Banderites. He cultivated this relationship along with that of Alexander Ziplinsky, who then headed the GUR. Which is uh, Ukraine's military intelligence. Time it had grown out of uh, the GRU, which was the Soviet military intelligence service, which had had close links to for many years. Anyway, Fillin was a senior figure in the Ukrainian GUR and had also been a pretty big figure in uh, the GRU previously as well as we've mentioned throughout this series. So later, Zybolskiy took over the SBU which is effectively Ukraine's version of the CIA this occurred during the knots in the midst of the good old Orange Revolution which we uh, keep seeming to come back to right and if that's not enough Zeblensky even headed Viktor Yushchenko's security during this time Yushenko, of course was the figure who was brought to power in Ukraine because of the Orange Revolution along with his uh he became the president and then his prime minister was a woman named uh yuli timoshenko who we will also be hearing a lot about throughout this so anyway keep them in mind but they came to power with the orange revolution Tymoshenko and tuli timoshenko okay anyway it's fitting as it seems the orange revolution is what really established the bandarites as a force in ukraine as well by the time Yashchenko came to power, he was married to a woman named Katryana Yashchenko. She grew up in an OUNB family in Chicago and was taught by Lev Dobriansky, the Ukrainian nationalist and major figure in Wackel, and was basically its successor to the captive nations for many years. Of course, captive nations actually predated Wackle. Uh, it's celebrated every third week in July. They have the big captive Nations summit that's now put on by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which Lev was a co-founder of, along with Zbigniew Brzezinski, Lee Edwards, and a lot of other uh, foreign policy bigwigs. It's had a lot of ties to the Heritage Foundation for many years, but also the Atlantic Council, which is a big neoliberal body, so a bit of a crossover with all of this, which is fitting in light of some of the stuff that we're going to take a look at here Biden. <clears throat> but anyway, another figure who joined Katriana from the OUNB with Yushchenko in his administration was a fellow named Roman Zarich, a protege of Stetsko. That was uh, Yaroslav's wife in the OUNB. And Stava was essentially who took over for Yaroslav after he died and headed the OUNB for several years until uh, she followed him into the great beyond. But anyway, under Yushchenko, Zarevich was a close advisor to the Minister of Justice. So you had a strong OUNB presence throughout Yushenko's administration, which they made common cause with uh, the domestic nationalists like Vladimir Filin within the security services. Okay. The one kind of happy family, quote unquote, that came out of all of this. And the Justice Department is important, too, because that gave uh, Zarich access to the National Police, all that other kind of stuff. And then conversely, you've also got Catriona, um in the presidential uh, White House over there. And we've already talked about another uh, figure from the U.S. who was not tied to the OUNB, but probably had links to another one of the OUN factions, senior uh, general in the U.S. who um, was later basically the kind of shadow minister of defense for Ukraine for a lot of years. So, yeah, it, it's important to emphasize that there was a lot of both U.S. and OUNB support within the Ukrainian government by this point of time, i.e. the mid-nots after the Orange Revolution. So, anyway, when we last left off with Europe, we had just explored the Russo Georgian War in 2008 and the fallout. Far West hoped to use this as a ploy to bring John McCain to power in the US and restart the Cold War in earnest. This is again unfolding during the elections between John McCain and Barack Obama. Things obviously didn't work out as planned. McCain lost and Obama won. But it wasn't the end of the world. At least not yet <laughs> far West had allies in the Obama White House most notably good old Joe Biden along with the uh retainer Secretary of Defense Robert Gates who had first come to power well I mean he had been a major power in foreign policy circles for a number of years but he had first become the Secretary of Defense in 2006 under Bush too and then continued in the position under Biden for several years so anyway uh the former i.e joe biden was a guy that far west began cultivating back in 08 and then starting around 2009 left argue reported rumblings of regime change in the u.s with biden poised to become the president in 2012 which is something that we'll explore further um in the next installment with senate okay um but anyway there were already a lot of overtures being made with joe biden personally and robert gates had probably already been a part of the far west milieu maybe even going back uh, to the late 80s as i think we had talked a bit about in uh, some of the earlier episodes gates is a guy that goes you know that turns up in the far west or excuse me the great ruble scandal some of this other stuff you know, back around the late 80s early 90s the uh the proliferation of funds out of russia by the kgb to stash away and Western banks, just all kinds of incredible stuff like that. But anyway, uh, as for more recent events, it, it, uh, Biden obviously didn't become the president in 2012. It took another eight years for that to become a thing. What's more, Anton Surikov, a major figure at far west, also turned up dead in Uh, Basically, you saw a lot of far west figures starting to turn up dead around this time things simmered down for a bit but then came that whole crucial 2013-2014 period which saw the obama administration taking a much more confrontational stance against russia get a little bit into that here and much more in the next episode but this was a major turning point in things and in fairness to mr obama he really seems to have made an effort to de-escalate tensions with russia when he came to power because the you know even though now it's largely forgotten the russia georgian war might have been a much bigger powder keg than what a lot of people realized at the time but anyway another interesting development also unfolding then is one i've been exploring in my ongoing coverage of the private military group known as the Wagner group just made so many headlines of late most notably with the purported coup that they supposedly staged in June on midsummer's uh day and Eve so for those of you who are not on the farms Patreon here's a brief recap of what I've been getting into with this so preliminary planning for Wagner began around 2008 getting right around the time of the russo Georgian War Putin and several of his top generals even met with one of the most notorious PMC heads and founders who we've talked about at length in the series. And that is where the blueprint for Wagner came from. But it wasn't until 2013, 2014 that the push really started to... Get the group functioning actively its first appearance was in the aftermath of the Euromedan madan uprisings in 2014 but the blueprints that already worked on for six years though there was seemingly a bit of a lull um after 08 and then going into the 2012-2013 period when things started to pick up again right that in mind again as we start looking at all the other events that are unfolding during this time so on that note what was happening during this crucial time frame okay to unpack that we need to explore a few additional characters and what they were up to in the years leading up to 2013 2014 a good launching point for this is the infamous lobbyist paul manafort obviously Paul Manafort has a very colorful history, one that would probably warrant its own series. So I'm going to focus on the points most relevant to the Far West saga. So as many of you are probably aware, Manafort rose to prominence during the 1980s while working for the storied lobbying group in Washington known as Black Manafort Stone and Kelly or BMSK. Manafort was the M in that. Obviously, he was one of the co-founders, along with the notorious Roger Stone. Guys have known each other for a while, but mildly. And one of the most infamous clients during this time of BMSK was Unita's Jonas Samvia. Samvia is a character we've encountered time and again throughout this series. Samvia and Unita were supported by the U.S. and apartheid South Africa, during the MLPA in Cuba during the Reagan years this whole conflict in Southern Africa is very rarely talked about but it was a significant theater in the various low intensity conflicts that were unfolding across the world at this time to effectively break the Soviet Union again we all know about uh, Nicaragua what was going on there with the Sandistas and arming them as well as some of the other um, freedom fighter groups or, uh, more accurately, death squads that were being used in the Central um, American nations and some of the South American nations as well during this whole era, and frankly, Mexico as well. Uh, But also, you know, again, you had the stuff with Afghanistan. We all know about that. But Southern Africa, there were a lot of conflicts being fought there in Angola, which is where UNITA was squaring off against the MPOA in Cuba with backing from South Africa and the U.S. You also had uh, Southwest Africa now Nambia that was a major site of conflict um, up until about 1980, uh, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, it was another hot spot. So it was very a violent time in this region of the world. Okay. And Sambia was the main uh, figure who was getting a lot of the funding for the United States outside of apartheid South Africa by the 1980s. And BMSK was instrumental in generating this financial support for Sambia. Sambia became a fixture at events sponsored by things like the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, and good old Freedom House. The latter is especially interesting as we noted in parts eight or seven and eight of this series freedom house became a crucial note in the color revolutions network along with the infamous open Societies foundation of george soros and the national endowment for democracy during the 21st century color revolutions were first embraced by the reagan administration who launched the national endowment for democracy in 1983 for such purposes freedom house had existed since the 1940s but appears to have been repurposed during this time so already you can see this network taking shape though soon electioneering rather than bullets would be the main weapon used for coups but i digress but again keep in mind this is all unfolding against the backdrop of these quote unquote low intensity conflicts all across the globe, but especially in southern africa in central america and in afghanistan and these are you know more or less guerrilla wars or whatever you want to call them but at the same time the reagan administration is also starting to build up the infrastructure For what are now properly referred to as color revolutions or velvet coups or soft coups or whatever acronym you want to use for it okay Um, but this was all kind of being developed during the reagan bush years which i think is significant and something that a lot of people um tend to ignore but anyway, after the Cold War ended, the PMC executive outcome, South African PMC executive outcome, with support from elements of the UK establishment, supported the MPLA against UNITA in a bid to break Sambia's forces in Angola once and for all. Sambia was being supported by elements of Nelson Mandela's government, most notably Sean Clearly, a future founder of the Aranis PMC, by the late. 1990s, a proto version of Far West was also involved in supporting Sambia. And notably, the U.S. continued to covertly support the war ward, warlord as well. And it would seem Manafort was at the forefront of these efforts. During the Cold War, Manafort was able to generate hundreds of millions of U.S. congressional funding for Sambia. This seems to have continued until at least 1992. This is the last time I could establish a linkage between Manafort and Sanvio. This is right around the time EO moved into Angola. That's executive outcome moving into Angola. I believe EO founder, even Barlow, briefly mentions Manafort in his account of executive outcome, but I wasn't able to find the relevant passage. But Manafort does appear to have been a player in Angola, Uh, up until the mid 90s after that I don't think so much especially by like 1995 1996 Manafort was probably a lot more preoccupied with running uh, Bob Dole's presidential campaign than shilling for Sambia bigger fish to fry and you know all that jazz right uh, but this is still playing out around the time that uh, Executive Outcome was in the midst of their major military operations there. That would have been probably like 93, 94, if I remember correctly. So, again, just really interesting with all this. Um, but anyway, it probably goes without saying. Uh, but the next episode in Manafort's career that concerns us are his links to Ukraine. So manafort's entry into ukraine is typically linked to the ukrainian oligarch Oleg deripaska this relationship apparently began around 2003 shortly before the orange revolution deripaska is usually described as a pro-putin oligarch but things are more complicated than that for one he's been a permanent participant in the world economic forum since 2007 while the company he once headed was a strategic partner for the wef he's also a close business partner of nathaniel rothschild and peter mandelson a major figure in the uk labor party mandelson who was also behind the uk's highly ritualistic millennium dome show is another big uh, davos slash wef lackey as well so these are the circles that uh derry pasca has been running in here around the time that he brought um manaford into ukraine right but perhaps more importantly derry pasca was married to a woman called polina yumashiva from 2001 to 2018 and Yumashiva is the daughter of Boris Yeltsin's top advisor and stepdaughter to his daughter, Tayana Yumashiva. Tayana and her husband, Valentin Yumashima, were central figures in Yeltsin's glorified Mafia clan, fittingly dubbed The Family. Again, you've probably heard a lot about these guys throughout this series as well especially during the great ruble scandal the family was just absolutely instrumental in pillaging rough russia and opening it up to exploitation from western businesses throughout this whole era and it just so happens uh, derry pasca was also a central figure in the yeltsin family like alexander Volishin, who we previously discussed i think in um episode eight if i remember correctly uh, Pasca appears to have been a holdover from the yeltsin years who was used as an emissary by the west to putin and even then putin appears to have become disillusioned with Pasca by the end of the knots at one point deripaska was one of the richest men in russia but after being bailed out by putin during the 0708 financial crisis he effectively lost control of his business holdings and much of his wealth he appears to have relocated to Cyprus after resigning as president of several major Russian companies and then he was sanctioned in 2022 by the UK over the uh, Russia-Russo-Ukrainian War uh, which despite being pretty critical of russia's involvement in fact uh, the russian state sees deripaska's property over his criticism so he kind of got it from both ends the uh west and the east right so in other words while deripaska is unquestionably an oligarch just how pro-putin he is is pretty debatable like much of the elson family his Principal concern seems to have been with looting Russia and Eastern Europe. And then this is the guy who brought Manafort into Ukrainian politics, which is fitting, to put mildly. So, the same ambiguity hangs over another close Ukrainian partner of Manafort's, Dmitry Fertesh. Fertesz is reportedly who brought good old Paul Manford into aid the supposedly pro-Putin president, Viktor Yanukovych, Yushchenko Yuschenko, Yuschenko. Needless to say, Fertesz has a murky background. Furtash cultivated a close relationship with Viktor Yuschenko, the previous president of Ukraine, the one who came to power during the Orange Revolution, to the point of contributing to the downfall of his administration. It involved an oil company known as Rosku Energo, which was partly owned by the Russian oil major Gazprom and partly by Furtash. Furtash convinced Yushenko to sign a sweetheart deal with Rosak Ngaro, which outraged Prime Minister Yuli Timoshenko and shattered the Orange Coalition. So once yushenko's fate was sealed, Furtash jumped ship and hitched his cart to kovich right? supposedly furtash's rise among the ukrainian oligarch ranks was aided by robert maxwell's old partner in crime simeon Mogilevich, other guy we've heard about throughout this series especially in the first installment when we were getting into the looting of russia right So, it was noted there that Simon Mugliavich was part of Robert Maxwell's efforts to stash away KGB funds in the West as the Cold War was winding down. Fertesz insisted that he severed business ties with Mugliavich back in 2003, but suspicions have remained. Anyway, this was the guy who brought Manafort in to advise and work with Yanukovych but once Manafort starts working with Yunukovych, the supposedly pro-Russian president makes a curious decision after coming to power in 2010. Yunukovych begins holding talks on trade and cooperation agreements with the European Union. Yunukovych was set to sign a deal with the EU in November 2013 but in September Russia threatened to impose punitive tariffs that would cost Ukraine billions and lead to a default of $15 billion loan by the nation. And Russia also threatened political instability in the East, which could lead to its intervention, which is exactly what ended up happening. Thus, the stage was set for Yeramadon. Students, backed by the Ukrainian oligarchs, began fierce protests. They centered in Medan Square, which was so instrumental to the Orange Revolution. Yunukovych tried to ban the demonstrations, but that only exasperated the situation. Just a few years prior, Ukraine had witnessed the rise of the Sobodia Party, it grew out of the paramilitary wing of the Ukrainian National Assembly. So during the Orange Revolution, this group provided security for Yushchenko's supporters. Even at this point, it was partially drawn from the ranks of veterans of the 1992 Moldovia Transseria conflict, the 1993 Georgian Abkhazia War, the 1995 Chesnian War, and the 1999 Kosovo War. And in the case of the Chesnian War, they supported chesney against russian forces meaning they possibly fell into the uh, the orbit of far west as far back as then far west later supported forces in the as Bekhaza region of georgia during the 2008 georgian war as well in fact that whole area of Bekhaza was essential to it um more or less a kind of genocide was launched there which is what really spurred russian intervention into georgia in 2008 and hope seems to have been that uh, forces supported by far west would be able to tie russia down there and potentially lead to a wider conflict that drew the united states in. obviously that was not what happened and russia was able to advance much faster than anybody had really anticipated but again it's interesting that they you know, as far back uh, as 2004, they were already potentially working with these veterans. It might have even gone back further, obviously, to the conflicts in the 90s that were being waged there. It seems like this region was of special interest to uh, Far West for a while. But anyway, that's the uh, Soboda Party, and kind of which is basically a glorified paramilitary force. So anyway, by the time these figures gravitated to uh, Subota during the late noughts, uh, the U.S. was firmly in this camp. In the run-up to the Euromadan, Far West affiliates like John McCain and Victoria Newland were meeting with them. Again, the listener will recall that Far West had initially supported McCain's presidential campaign in 08 when they forged ties with both McCain and Newland's husband, Robert Kagan. Big neocon, this guy, Robert Kagan. Again, this is usually overlooked, but he was a big figure in the Bush 2 administration, okay? Basically, the same cast of characters in the past few episodes converged on Ukraine in this crucial 2013-2014 period. This is the second major period of escalation after 2008. It's also involved a lot of McCain's people, along with the former... Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili, who relocated to Ukraine in 2015 and became the governor of the Odessa Oblast. That's why it's especially interesting that Manafort played such a crucial role in setting these events in motion. Was it mere greed? Was he being manipulated? Or a combination of both?
0: I pray uh, to myself. Uh... FOR MYSELF myself
1: guy to turn up repeatedly in the Manafort saga goes by the name of David J. Kramer. This guy's CV is pretty much in line with the pattern we've seen throughout this series. Before doing his Soviet studies at Harvard, he spent much of his college years at Tufts University. Again, this school has long been associated with Gene Sharp and his particular method of color revolution. Keep this in mind for some kramer's later activities so mr kramer arrives in washington in 1993 and takes a job at the center for strategic and international studies the cis is an extremely powerful and influential foreign policy think tank it's it's actually kind of a meeting ground between neoliberal neocon and far-right elements it was uh founded by ray klein it uh but it also had a lot of links to people like henry kissinger and also Zabigny brzezinski so it's to say maybe a little more moderate than the Center for Security Policy, at least. Uh, but anyway, from there, Mr. Kramer ends up at the Project for the New American Century. Yeah, because you knew it was coming, right? His bio insists it was only for a short time. But when he entered government with the Bush II administration, he soon became a special advisor to then-undersecretary of state for global affairs, Paula Dobryansky. Imagine that. By the end of the Bush 2 years, he had worked his way up to a sec- assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor. So we've encountered the project for a new American century constantly throughout this series. Besides Pola Dobriansky, another figure in the Far West, who you involved with it, was a guy named Randy Schumann. Schumann was another figure, closely linked to John McCain. Whether Schumann and Kramer knew each other back um, when Kramer first got into politics is unknown, but they both worked in the 2008 McCain campaign together, and later ended up on the board together of the International Republican Institute. Fittingly, this was another body McCain was closely connected to. Left argue insists that next to fellow PNAC member Robert Kagan, Toria Owen's husband, Randy Schumann, was the figure most closely connected to Far West in the McCain camp. Schumann also worked with former Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili as a lobbyist at one point and here he is working with Kramer time and again throughout the latter's career so Kramer is the assistant Secretary of State for democracy human rights and labor in 2018 which is post that has historically worked closely with a lot on a lot of color revolutions with groups like the National Endowment for Democracy and the Open Society Foundation Freedom House all the usual suspects So it was surely a stepping stone for Kramer for a greater role uh, in McCain's hypothetical administration. Kramer spent all of the Bush two years in the State Department specializing in Eastern European and Eurasian affairs. So given that they are attempting the whole pivot to Eurasia during this time, good chance Kramer was being groomed to eventually rise to the Secretary of State In a McCain administration, if such a thing had uh, become a reality, Kramer was deeply involved in McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, and he remained close to McCain until the end of the senator's life. Reportedly, he was instrumental in driving Manafort out of McCain's campaign during 2008. So Kramer left government in 09 after Obama took office and ended up heading. freedom house we we keep coming back to all these groups again right don't we kramer held this post until 2014 and during the prior two shows we spoke a bit about freedom house this was again one of the main groups along with the national endowment for democracy soros's open society foundation all these color revolutions became so prolific in the 21st century So anyway, after Kramer leaves Freedom House, he ended up at the McCain Institute, because of course he did, right? In 2016, the infamous former MI6 asset Christopher Steele gave Kramer the equally infamous Steele dossier to pass on to John McCain. But instead, Kramer in his infinite wisdom leaked it to the press, thus causing a major incident with all of that. He also supported the efforts of Fusion GPS to legitimize the dossier and take down Manafort during this time. And Fusion GPS is interesting. It's another private intelligence company. It was also almost entirely founded by journalists. Another intriguing component of this. Kramer and Fusion GPS co-founder Glenn Simpson had known each other since the Noughts. When Simpson was working as an investigative journalist centered on Eastern Europe for... Wall Street Journal. As we've noted throughout this series, Far West operated through the media a great deal. So it's especially interesting to find a figure like Kramer turning up in the Fusion GPS saga. Of course, this was a big part of Russiagate, which certainly has a Far West flavor to it. And given McCain's links to Far West since at least 2008 and his central role in Russiagate, it, it cannot be discounted that the two are related. Interestingly enough, another figure who later played a crucial role in bringing down Trump was Fiona Hill. Hill was one of the anti-Russian hawks on Trump's National Security Council, and she later testified against him in the first wave of impeachment hearings. And she was also believed to have been cultivated by Far West as far back as the Bush 2 administration. She was a protege of Fritz Ermuth. What's more, she apparently knew Christopher Steele since at least 2012. Thus, it would seem there was a distinct lineage to Far West among the anti-Trump forces. Besides obvious figures such as Phelan's reputed business partner George Soros, of course. What's really interesting about all of this is that there was an earlier Russiagate and one that you've never heard of. So, this one unfolded in 1999. Just as Al Gore's presidential campaign was gearing up, naturally it involved the good old Bank of New York and the Great Ruble Scandal, which we detailed at length in a couple of the prior shows. So, again, this is all playing out with the same crowd of actors here. Gore's relationship with uh, Russian Prime Minister Viktor Shumadirin was used to implicate him in the scandal. Left RU alleges that a major source of dirt on Gore's involvement in these intrigues was none other than Fiona Hill's mentor, Fritz So, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised by all the figures in Far West Mill turning up again in the Russia Gate 2.0. Especially Fiona Hill playing such a major role in all of this, right? So... Shifting gears, let's briefly consider the whole Burisma thing. There appears to be a tangential Far West linkage, but not nearly to the extent as Russiagate. So Burisma in and of itself is not as important as the company which actually owned it, namely the Privet Group. And the major figure behind the Privet Group is a Ukrainian oligarch named Ihor Kolomoski back in the post-Orange Revolution, years Kolomoski supported Yushchenko's regime. but he apparently shifted his support to Prime Minister Yuli Tymoshenko, who regularly clashed with Far West left are you claims intelligence figures in the ukrainian security services loyal to timoshenko or who leaked all that dirt in the far west and smuggling of nukes out of the country back in the mid noughts Tymoshenko was always kind of seen as a bit of a middle ground between uh, the pro-Russian forces in the Ukrainian government and the uh, fanatical Banderite slash pro-U.S. forces. Tymoshenko was maybe more pro-Europe, though certainly not anti-U.S., but not as committed to the U.S. and NATO as the Banderite faction was, which was much more closely aligned with Far West as well. And keep that in mind because it will be pretty significant here going forward. Uh, but anyway, after the uh, Euromedon incident, Kolomoski was appointed governor of Dnieper Protost Oblast, which is Ukraine's industrial heartland. It's in the southeast of the country, right next to the breakaway regions as well. So, and this is all at the forefront of the fighting. And indeed, Kolomoski started enlisting private group employees as police auxiliaries and such during this time so let's put some context to all this this is 2014 this is right around the time when biden and several top u.s officials including this archer fellow that you've been hearing so much about in the news lately joined burisma it's also shortly after Kolomoski came to control burisma Previously, it was owned by a uh, oligarch close to um Yunukovych, the pro-Russian uh Ukrainian president. Should pro-Russian in that is by the way, in quotations. But anyway, uh, this is also around the time what eventually became the Wagner group started making its first appearance in eastern Ukraine. But to return to Kolomoski so he's appointed by alexander turchinov who was ukraine's interim president during the in between the regimes of um Unikovich and uh petro poroshenko who came to power in mid 2014 that's uh, poroshenko by the way turchinov had previously headed the sbu ukraine's version of the cia he was also close to Timoshenko and played a crucial role in the investigation of Paul Manafort's crucial business partner, Dmitry Furtesh. This was related to the Uck Energo scandal, which, again, is what brought down Yushchenko's regime. This is the Orange Coalition that I'm talking about here, okay? A major factor in that was Yushchenko's dismissal of Turchinov as head of the SBU in the midst of the investigation in 2005. This is also around the time Far West's role in the nuke smuggling was leaked by the Ukrainian security services. So it's possible Turchinov is tied in with all of this. So Poroshenko comes to power and clashes with Kolominsky. Poroshenko seems to be heavily into the Bandarai camp. He brings Villa in from Georgia and makes him governor of Odessa. And reportedly, um, Poroshenko was also close to Igor Urbaninsky, the owner of the Kalbi group. Again, the listener will recall the Calbee was the shipping company implicated in smuggling the nukes with Far West. Supposedly, they even owned Far West outright. My general sense is that there was a strong Far West president in Poroshenko's administration, though he later dismissed Sakosh and that led to a public feud, but it was probably driven more by either man's political ambitions. Before that, Sakash and Kolominsky clashed fiercely in public. Okay, very colorful uh, comments were made uh, by one man about the other, and vice versa. So the next round of elections are in 2019, and this famously brings Zelensky to power. And he received a lot of support from Kolomowski in this election. A lot of interesting stuff starts happening around this time. So Kofor Black, a former CIA officer and Blackwater employee, joins Burisma's board in 2019, along with Hunter Biden, who had been there since 2012. And the U.S. starts investigating Kolomoski as well. And this comes after an intense investigation in Ukraine, which resulted in a firm company, private Bank, being nationalized was a part of the private Group guys didn't make the connection already so the u.s investigation continues after joe biden comes to power secretary of state anthony blinken even threw Kolomoski under the bus in 2021 so what all was going on here well Zelensky came to power during trump's presidency i suspect Kolomoski and other Tymoshenko backers, combined with the Trump administration to try and establish a quote-unquote centralist government in Ukraine. By that, I mean one that wasn't dominated by Russia or the Banderites. Zelensky was never as militant as the Banderites, and was later forced into an uneasy alliance with this faction. To this day, I, I don't think the relationship is that strong. My guess is that Far West, or what was left of it at this point, continued to make cause with the band rights. The appointment of Kofor Black to Burisma around the time Kolomoski was seemingly being forced out may signal an alliance between Biden and the Bush wing of the Republican Party. Black, Kofor Black, was a big figure in the Bush 2 administration. Far West was always closer to the Republican Party in the U.S., despite letter links to Biden, Hunter Biden's role in Burisma may have been an instance of the U.S. hedging its bets, showing Far West it was willing to work with other partners in Ukraine. I suspect the Trump presidency probably united all of these groups in opposition to him. The Blackwater linkage is intriguing as well. This is around the time Eric Prince was making a push to take over U.S. military support in Ukraine. And it's also around the time he began squaring off against Wagner and its allies in Africa, including the guy who effectively gave the Russians the blueprints for Wagner. So lots of intrigues with all this. And of course, I mean, the whole thing with Zelensky coming to power ended up becoming instrumental in something later Ordered impeachment charges against Trump so again it's entirely possible in backing Zelensky Trump thought that he was getting more of a moderate candidate but there were already um, mechanisms in place to try and uh, drag him into scandal again this is kind of tied into his insistence on investigations of Joe Biden and all of this so Very intriguing. But again, if you're following the trajectory of what the US foreign policy have been trying to do, you could see this as possibly an attempt to try and head off further destabilization in Eastern Europe. And obviously it it didn't work out that well, right? So further possibly bolstering this is another bizarre incident I wanted to get into here right quick. It's one final coda to possible Far West intrigues in Ukraine all throughout this time. It's tied into the circumstances around the alleged attempted assassination of journalist Arkady Babsinko. So, as the story goes, Babsinko was believed to have been assassinated on May 29th, 2018. However, the murder was staged, and staged by the SBU as a sting operation. Babsinko was very much alive and even did a press conference the next day to drive this point home. Supposedly, the SBU staged his murder to implicate Russian involvement. The man who put up the money for Babsinko's murder was a businessman working for a German-Ukrainian arms firm. Supposedly, his father, a guy named Lev Herman, was an associate of Yan Mogilevich from back in the day. That same gangster we keep coming into time and again. But the younger Herman was either working with the SBU or had been turned by them at this point. This was to ensnare the actual contractor for the murder, a Ukrainian citizen named Slav Pivovarnik. So Pivovarnik was also involved in the arms industry, and he was working in Russia at the time and had links to Vatislav Surkov. We've mentioned him before at one point he had a lot of influence with with putin He's kind of the guy who's credited with the post-modern approach to psychological warfare that the russians have supposedly mastered right um he also has drawn a lot of ire from uh the orthodox uh, far-right orthodox factions within putin's uh, russia as well as far west as well, or excuse me, of uh, the Wagner group as well. So it's interesting that he's drawn the ire of some of these groups here. And as we had discussed uh, previously, it seems like um, Surkov might have been collaborating, at least indirectly, with Far West at one point. So keep that in mind in light of some of the stuff here that we're about to unpack, okay? Anyway, Surkov was central to the Russian angle the SBU was trying to sell. But uh, Pivo Varnik had an interesting version of events, okay? He claimed that he was recruited by a Kiev-based outfit called the Institute of Geopolitical and Economic Research. This group was run by a fellow that we talked about at the beginning of this. This was Alexander Ziplinsky, the first head of the GUR and the later head of the SBU. And more importantly, this was allegedly Vladimir Filin's boss back in the 1990s with the GUR in Ukraine. Supposedly, Ziblinski was also a major point of contact for the U.S. Banderites beginning around this time in the mid-90s. So, Pimovarnik alleges that Ziblinski recruited him to infiltrate the team around Serkov, and in return... Pivovarnik could smuggle all the arms that he wanted to to his heart was content. His mission was to encourage Surkov to provoke Putin into launching a series of terrorist attacks in Ukraine. Further, Pivovarnik claimed that he was an asset of the GUR throughout this time. So basically it seems like after Pivovarnik was unable to manage this, the Ukrainian security services attempted to carry out their own false flag by staging Babsinko's murder and attempting to implicate the Russians via Varnik. This seems to be pretty consistent with Far West modus operandi and features several figures linked to the group. And if that wasn't enough, Babsenko has put forward an interesting name for the actual mastermind behind his purported attempted murder. Wagner founder, Giovanni Prigoza. Supposedly, this was over the investigative journalism that Babsenko had been doing on Wagner. It was some of the first serious press the private military company had received. And again, this this can't be discounted in my opinion it's possible Bevsinko was part of the broader far West milieu Bevsinko was in the Russian military prior to becoming a journalist and he fought in both Chesney and Wars he could have potentially encountered far West figures as far back as then and if I'm right about Wagner being set up as a rival to far West it would make sense far West would attack it partly through the press this was something that they absolutely excelled at. And to a certain extent, you can maybe even see echoes of the later purported coup that Wagner staged in uh, June of 2023. Again, this, in my opinion, was a kind of sting operation, not unlike what the SBU was trying to do with PVO varnick uh, I suspect probably luring in pro Russian factions within the Ukrainian security services and then also launching a false flag here. On well, the case of the end game here with Vivo Varnik, it was actually not even a false flag. They really wanted uh, Russia to be provoked into attacks. And who knows, it's possible that that might have also been an intention of the Wagner coup to potentially elicit violence on the part of pro-U.S. forces and the Russian security services. So, you know, with all these spy versus spy stuff that's been playing out uh, recently, I think that this particular incident is probably a lot more significant than almost anybody realizes. That, um Oh, it was probably big in this whole run-up here, to put it mildly, and it might have been another instance of attempting to force Trump's hand. Again, this was unfolding in 08 before uh, the Donald's infamous call to Zelensky in 2019, which has been the source of so much scandal and speculation ever since. So on that note, before I start getting too far into present day, let's just step back here for a minute and return to the 2013-2014 period. So, left RU suggests that upon taking office, the Obama administration attempted détente with Russia, and indeed, after the Russo-Georgian War in 2008, tensions did abate for a time. But then came 2013, 2014 period, which put us on the course for today's conflict in Ukraine. So, we've been exploring the developments in Ukraine that led to Cold War 2.0, but wasn't just Ukraine. As I had hinted at at the beginning of this, there was a major undertaking across the globe, which again we can maybe draw parallels to in the 1980s with all those low-intensity conflicts that the U.S. started against Russia, and which were so instrumental in bringing the Cold War to a conclusion as a decisive U.S. victory. We're going to look at some of the other things happening, but Certainly, you had the boiling tensions in Ukraine basically turning into a hot war with Yuram and continuing to fester and simmer for many years afterwards. And that was just the tip of the iceberg about what started to unfold, which we will get to in the next installment. On that note, I will sign off for now. Hope that this uh, was not too rough on you guys with just me being in here by my lonesome. But I uh as always have tried to bring some interesting information for everybody. So with that, I say thank you so much for listening and your support. And as always, a good night and good luck to you all.
0: Come on, baby, pick me up out here in my wiki sick and tired of fucking up Sick and tired of pushing luck Voodoo brew got juice in it Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 From the Copper Queen for singing this I took it to the Gulf J Blu Ray. My people there They feeling me Down low skin Roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry y'all I ain't in a hurry y'all Come on baby Pick me up my wiki up, stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell, I tell you what, put it up and knock it down, moving on that big round. come on mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump baby, we gotta go, hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out, cause they done let the wolves out. They're coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama, fight or flight, adrenaline, you feel that little tingle in your feet Mama, no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it, you want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo A both with santa and wet diffusing it shoot it over the castle while the migra can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great while the greatest walls are bound to fall so legalize it vato about the Genghis chapo Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC got no economy, if we ain't got no enemy, the Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, Uavs Officer, excuse me please, said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for, see you all on payday, see you at the Safeway, this on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hool blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies <laughs> If great white father don't make payroll forget about your maple. It's just that one thing that ain't too clear I said people always bitchin' the government here But that the Our whole civilization, what?